Morristown Church this morning, particularly if you're here for the first time or the first or second time. Uh, my name is Clive. I'm part of the leadership team here. Ant and Helen, our pastoral couple, are away for a break, a well-earned break. Um, and I'll be sharing God's Word with you this morning. I have the, the privilege of trying to preach to you with a mental image in my mind of Tim having his legs waxed. Um, I, I wish you hadn't said that. Um, it can be quite distracting. Um, over the last, I think I'm going to pull this a bit closer here. Yep. Over the last number of weeks, Ant's been talking to us about the resurrection. And uh, I've been enjoying this series. He's really been getting into it, and we've been having the benefit of the studies that he's undertaking up in Oxford at the moment. Um, I'm continuing to talk today about the resurrection, but I'm going to, to break away and, and just look at it from snapshots of a more personal nature of the people that encountered Jesus after the resurrection. And the first thing you do when you start preparing to do that is you go and read the account of the resurrection in the four different Gospels. And you find that they aren't the same. In fact, there are substantial differences. And some record the actions and words of individuals. Some record more incidents than others. And for some, this is a bit of a challenge. They, they see this as possibly being a contradiction. Why aren't the accounts all smoothly and seamlessly the same? And I'd like to respond to that briefly before I carry on. Um, I'm not a detective, um, but I'm a teacher and a head teacher. And so sometimes I have to be a detective. Uh, I've spent more than 20 years examining incidents, uh, listening to witnesses, receiving eyewitness accounts. And one of the things I can say to you is if, if I have a group of witnesses or uh, people to call for information about something that's happened, I tend to separate them and speak to them individually before I put them together. And when they come in and I have all four give a verbatim, word-by-word -word account, I begin to become suspicious. Because people don't see the same incident in the same way. And when the story is slick word for word, you begin to think that there might have been collusion and a bit of prompting and a bit of coaching uh, which takes place. And it's quite easy to pop that bubble when you begin to ask questions about the person's experience. Uh, and you circle around a bit and, and it begins to fall apart. The truth of the matter is when people experience something profound, they all take different things from it. And I think that the Gospels refreshingly reflect the different priorities and the different things that people call out as being the things that were the most important to them. There are differences. They're the reality of people telling their story from a place of a tremendous impact on their lives when it happened. And so I'm one of the people who doesn't find that to be something that is disconcerting. I find it encouraging. And there are a number of articles that have been written that you can go and look at about how people reconcile the different gospel accounts. But uh, Josh McDowell quotes a guy called Wilbur Smith, and he's not the South African novelist. He's a, a theological historian. And he says, in these fundamental truths the main truths of the resurrection, there is absolutely no contradiction. The so-called variations in the narratives are only the details which were most vividly impressed upon one mind or another of the witnesses of the Lord's resurrection or on the minds of the writers of these four respective Gospels. The closest, most critical examination of these narratives throughout the ages never had destroyed and never can destroy their powerful testimony to the truth that Christ did rise from the dead on the third day and was seen by many. And so this morning, I'm not going to try and analyze the various accounts and argue their veracity. 
Rather, I'm going to have a look at some of the incidents and draw out some of the things that people got from that and see how that touches my life and touches your life. And the first of the encounters that I want to look at, I call close encounters of the personal kind. I'd like to read you from Matthew 28 and verses 8 to 10. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The account in the book of John is more personal. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what, she had, what he had said, these thing, that he had said these things to her. The first physical encounter that people have with Jesus after the resurrection is not a rally. He didn't call a press conference. Um, he didn't choose to manifest himself in the market squares in Jerusalem before crowds. He did not choose to manifest himself before Pontius Pilate or the Sanhedrin and challenge their findings and prove them wrong. He appeared to people who cared about him and who had come out to seek him. We need to remember that the disciples were traumatized by what happened. It's very clear when you read the accounts in the Bible of the crucifixion and what happened afterwards that although Jesus had said to them on many occasions that he would die and rise again on the third day, they had not understood. They had not understood because the message was completely out of context with what their expectations were for what he was going to do. And therefore, when he was arrested, it was a traumatic experience for them. I can imagine that when the soldiers arrived with Judas to arrest him, that there were those amongst them, like Peter, who took a swipe with a sword, who thought, now we're going to see him fight. Now they're going to see They've messed with him long enough. They've talked about him long enough. They've, they've criticized him and, and, and ridiculed him for long enough. Now, when they try and lay a hand on him, now they're going to see, and Jesus did nothing. In fact, when they tried to fight for him, he healed the person that was injured. And then he gets taken the morning after in front of the, the authorities, and he begins to be questioned. And those that were close enough to, to see what was going on of his disciples and followers must have thought, we know just how powerful he is as a speaker. We know just how incredibly strong he is in terms of getting the point across. Now he's going to show them. Now he's going to defend his case. Now they're going to be made to look stupid as he declares the kingdom of God. And he says nothing. And then they take him to the cross. And maybe as the disciples stood afar... And, and, and were traumatized by the blood running down in from the beatings that he'd taken, maybe they thought, now. Now when they try and kill him, 
He will come off the cross and he will lead Israel to a triumphant victory over the Romans. And he didn't. He died. We talk about that in hindsight. And, and, and even as I talk about that in hindsight, it gets to me emotionally what they must have been going through. But it must have been far more than we can imagine. This person that they had been with for the, the previous three years, for, for 24 hours out of every day, this person who had sustained them, who had taught them, who had lifted them from, from their previous lives into something amazing, that they had seen perform miracles, that they had seen change lives, just suddenly it seems like it's broken. It didn't work. And there's confusion, and there's pain, and there's sorrow, and they can't even mourn as they would normally do because the Sabbath comes along and they separated from him. And so early in the morning, they set out to go and honor him at his place of burial. And I absolutely love the fact that Jesus chooses to meet with individuals, with a group of women, to meet with Mary. Not at that stage to deliver a sermon. Not at that stage to deliver a counter-argument for all the things they've seen but to appear to people that love him to reassure them of his presence and of his personal interest in their lives. It's a very personal encounter that starts things off. And that personal touch evidences Jesus' knowledge. As we were worshiping this morning, I just felt God saying to me as I did that you need to make this personal. God's relationship with us is on a very personal level. He loves the body of Christ corporate because we achieve the purpose that he set us to do when we work together and we bring our different giftings and talents and personalities together. But I want to say this to you. You never disappear into the crowd when it comes to Jesus. You never become just one of the family that meet together at Forest Town or just one of the people who serve Jesus in the United Kingdom or just one of the Christians worldwide. You never disappear into the crowd. There is a personal relation to you that, that Christ honors. And so he appears to Mary with a personal word to her. She tries to hold on to him. And he says, I, I'm, I'm on my way to my father. Don't try and hold on to me. He's paused in the middle of completing this incredible task to reassure. And there's other evidence of this. If you read in Mark chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, it says this, uh, the, the angel is talking to some of them. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples. And then something strange happens. He says, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You know, I believe everything in the Bible is there for a reason. Why is it state specifically, he said, tell his disciples and Peter. What was the last thing Peter did before Jesus was taken from them? He betrayed him. He bailed out. He disappointed himself. He declared he would be the one that would even die with Jesus, and when the time came, he ducked. And you know the story of the cock crowing and Jesus turning and looking at Peter, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine the sense of separation that he felt from the others? I bragged. I stood up to be a leader. I said, others will, de will desert you, Lord. I will never desert you. And he's fallen flat on his face. I imagine that if they'd come in telling the story of seeing Jesus, Peter would have thought, I'm the last person that he will want to see. And in the midst of all these enormous things that are happening in the universe and in time and in eternity, Jesus thinks to mention Peter by name. 
and say, go and tell the disciples, make sure you tell Peter, I'm back. I want to meet with him. I want to meet with them. There's a personal touch in the way Jesus connects with people after he is resurrected. And there's another example. John 20, verses 24 to 28. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, and he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. In all of this process, we see personal encounters being reinstigated by Jesus. There was no anger. Thomas, how dare you? Thomas, you don't deserve to be amongst the others. Doubting Thomas, we call him. <laughs> Guys, we've got a nerve calling him Doubting Thomas. How many of us have doubted the Lord in the simple things that he puts across our lives? This guy was being confronted with something that was difficult to understand. And when Jesus appears later, there's the personal touch. Thomas, come. You need to see something different. You need a different kind of affirmation. And so the first thing I would draw to you, to your attention about the people that Jesus encountered at his resurrection, you need to encounter him personally as well. It is one thing to be of a broader group of people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus is alive. But I would say to you that you need to personally have that encounter with him in your own life. You need to respond to him as he responds to us individually. There is a need to respond personally to Jesus Christ. A lot of people across the world, if you ask them where they stand with regard to faith, they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. And you'll say, "Based, you know, what's the basis of your faith? And they say, well, my family have always been Christians. We belong to this church or that church. We, we're part of the group of people who classify ourselves as Christian. We're not of another faith. We follow Christian traditions. And therefore, I'm a Christian. I would say to you, it takes a personal encounter. He sees you as an individual. He doesn't see you disappearing into the crowd. And the crowd can't respond on your behalf. When I talk to my pupils at my school about Jesus, one of the things I say to them is that God has got no grandchildren. The fact that your family know Jesus and that your parents know Jesus doesn't make you a child of God. You need to have a personal encounter with Him. It needs to be yours, your own, not by proxy through your parents or through your pastor or through your friends or through your culture. Let's move on to the second thing I want to pick up, and that's the, the story of the road to Emmaus. Probably the second encounter, there's the encounter in the garden. The next thing that happens chronologically, it appears, is the road to Emmaus. It says, now that same day, this is Luke chapter 24, and reading from verse 13 to verse 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And I don't know how that happened. There's several occasions now when Jesus appears when there isn't instant recognition. I know that I had a look at, 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 
um, what the Greek said in, in, in the original script, and it said it used the word kriteo, which is, it says their eyes were held captive. I don't know what held their eyes captive, what prevented them from recognizing him. Had he changed in appearance? Were they so focusing on the fact that he shouldn't be there that they wouldn't recognize him for who he was? I can't answer. But it says he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Notice the past tense. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped. Their hope is gone. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the Messiah. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The solution to all their fear and sadness was walking with them. But until he explained to them, they didn't know that they had reason to rejoice. Until he explained it to them, they hadn't understood the fullness of God's word. It must have been one of the most incredible Bible studies to ever attend. Jesus revealing himself through scripture as he walked with these men. Because they, like many others, as I mentioned, had believed that the plan had broken down. They had believed. They said they had believed he was the Messiah. All the signs were there that he was the Messiah. But when the crunch came, he didn't do what they expected him to do. And now Jesus himself comes to them in their point of despair, in their point of giving up. They were on their way home. Emmaus was where they were going home to. They had come from Emmaus and they had followed Jesus. For how many of the three years of his ministry, we don't know. They weren't of the 11, but they were of the broader group of disciples. And they're on their way back. They've got to a point where they say, there is no more relevance for us here. Jesus is gone. This vision that we have followed, this, this, this belief that we have followed has been fallen apart and we're on our way home. And Jesus appears and walks alongside them and begins to lay out for them the reality that is different to their perception. The story that he tells them and the story that he reveals through Scripture as he goes through all the prophets and what they say about the Messiah is countermanding what they have believed and their despair. And if you read on in the story, you know that the time comes when they're about to, to go in and he makes to go on. They say, no, come in and eat with us. And as he eats with them, he is revealed. And they're excited. I don't know about you, but I've often struggled to see the big picture. And I've become despondent as I've tried to reason out setbacks and disappointments. And I've sometimes wondered how I could ever feel confident in my faith again. Have you been there? When you've seen a clear plan of how you expect God to respond in your life and what he's going to do to make your life different. That first flush when you become a Christian and you think it's all going to go in a particular way and God's going to do this and he's going to do that. And I don't know about you, but in several times in my walk with Christ, I have thought I've seen the plan he has for me. 
I have thought that I've seen the reality of where he wants me to go, only to find out that he's got a completely different plan for me. And I have on occasions been distraught. I can remember a day in 1990, no, sorry, 1989, sitting in my office in the church I was working in, filled with despair, wondering if I could ever feel the joy of my faith again. Because the plans that I thought God had for me had not worked out in the way that I wanted them to. And the people that I had admired and respected had turned out to have feet of clay. And my great plan of ministry was not forthcoming. And I can remember wondering whether I could ever rejoice again in what God had called me to. And it's in those times of brokenness that we sometimes forget that Christ is walking with us, that his reality is different to our circumstances, and that his plan works. What Jesus explained to these men on the road was that the plan had not broken down. This was the plan. That God had not failed to be able to follow through to what he had intended with Jesus, that Jesus had not gone off the scheme, that this was not a failure, this was part of the plan, this is what God intended, and that God was working this together for good. God's been able to do that in my life, and I'm sure he's been able to do it in many lives here. But if you are currently on your road to Emmaus, if it hasn't worked out the way that you expected, if your dreams of what God was going to be in your life and what you were going to be in his life haven't been what you expected, and you've got to a point where you said, I've tried, I've done everything that was asked of me, and it doesn't look like it's working out, and so I'm on my way. I'm heading to Emmaus. I would encourage you to recognize the person that is walking alongside you and to allow him the opportunity to open up the truth of what he has got planned and reveal his plans to you because it's in always a better plan. It's always a better plan. When I look back at those times in my life, I, I'm a slow learner. I have to confess, I'm a slow learner. I've argued with God a lot. And he always wins. You'd think I'd, I'd learn at some particular point. And there have been several times when I've argued with him, this is the way to go. This is what... When I look back, that always turns out to be what I wanted. Not what God necessarily needed me to do. And when I look back at the outcomes of those occasions when I've had the courage to obey him in spite of not agreeing, it's always turned out being more effective and being the better way. It says in Luke 24 verse 32, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scriptures to us? The wonderful thing about these men is as they walked with Jesus, when they came to the place where they were going to end their ministry, where they were going to stop, and he meant to go past, they did one crucial thing. They said, come in. They didn't walk away. They didn't let him walk away. They invited him. I want to say to you in your moments of deepest despair, in your moments of discouragement, in your moments when you're not sure where to go, don't let him walk away. He doesn't want to. Invite him in. And you'll find that actually your heart's been burning with what he's been wanting to say anyway. The next encounter, I've just given the heading peace. And I want to go to Luke 24, 36, because 
The next encounter Jesus had with people, he appeared to the ladies in the garden, he appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus, and then he appeared to his disciples as they gathered together. And there are a couple of accounts of that. Both of them say one thing very profoundly. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. Um, and again, Jesus said in verse 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. In each occasion where Jesus is recorded as meeting, both in the book of John and in the book of Luke, with his disciples, he starts by saying, peace be with you. I want you to think about that. I've been taught that when Jesus says something should happen, it should happen. And he says to his disciples, peace be with you. If you've read your Bible and you've carried on their life story, it's not a peaceful life. It doesn't become a life which is spent sitting beside clear pools of water and looking at the flowers and, and admiring the sunsets. The challenge in their life actually begins now. Their time with Jesus before this was easy compared to what's coming. When Jesus was with them, he took care of everything. If there was a storm, he stopped it. If they didn't have enough food, he just produced it. When they needed to have authority, he spoke it into their lives. They saw things changing. If you look at their lives from here on in, what happens? Well, they're part of the very exciting but not very peaceful activities at Pentecost. They're part of starting the first church in Jerusalem. That's not easy. They have all the infighting of the church. They then have the persecution. Many of them go out on the mission field. And if you look at historical writings of the time, it's believed that all of the 11, with the exception of John, died as martyrs. So did Jesus get it wrong? Did he get it wrong? Was it, was it not possible for him to, to, to follow through? The peace referred to in this passage, and in both of these passages, which is available to us as well, doesn't refer to the circumstances that we live in or the things that happen in the world around us. It's the ability to have the assurance that Jesus is risen, that he is alive. When the disciples woke Jesus up in the boat that was going over the, the, the Sea of Galilee and the storm was raging, they woke him up and his response to them was, why, why, why did you bother? He does stop the storm, but he says, why were you struggling? Because he was in the boat with them. And because he was in the boat with them, they were there to accomplish the purpose. He said, we're going over the lake. They were going to get to the other side. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. And that peace is not a peace that we can break down to Jesus saying, I will fix all the circumstances in your life from here on in. Because I'm alive, because I've risen from the dead, Christianity will be a walk in the roses. If you're sitting here and you're a young Christian and somebody has told you accept Jesus into your life and you will never have a problem again, I'm sorry, I need to refute that. If they've told you that your problems are all flee, I'm sorry, they don't all flee. Some of them sometimes stay and sometimes new ones are added. The difference is that Jesus is in the boat with you now. His plan is working. His purpose in your life is working. And he is fully able, the Bible says, to work all things together for good. He's brought a purpose. He's brought his presence. He's brought his authority. He's brought his name into your life. That's where our peace exists. Not in how we feel about the circumstances, but in the reassurance that we have that there is a plan and a purpose for our lives, then we have the ability to walk in that and trust Him.
to fulfill his purpose. It's a, it's a different kind of peace. The fourth encounter which I want to talk about as I move on, I've called the beach party. And I need to read a, a passage here from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that was James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them because they were quite a distance away. Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered, and he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. I love this. Sometimes we have a perception that God's interest in us is all business. There's this cosmic war between God and the devil, between the light and the dark side. And it's all about scoring points and winning more people across to the light side from the dark side. And so when one of us accepts Jesus into our heart, an angel in heaven puts a mark on the scoreboard and God goes, yeah, I got one over the devil. Now let's get them working to achieve more of that. God wants us in his kingdom because he wants to spend time with us, because he loves us, because he enjoys our company, because he wants to have fellowship with us. When the Garden of Eden was created and Adam and Eve were put in it, the indications we have is that God came down to fellowship with them, to walk with them in the cool of the evening, to enjoy their company. The first thing that Jesus does with a group of disciples is not to organize an outreach or a rally or a tent meeting. He has a beach party. He has a barbecue. He cooks them a meal. He enters into conversation with individuals. There's a very powerful conversation with Peter putting to rest his betrayal of Jesus. There's a conversation that John reports. But there's a desire to be with the people that he loves. I want to say something to you this morning, and maybe if it's the only thing you remember this morning, it'll be worthwhile. Don't wait for heaven to enjoy Jesus. Don't wait for heaven to enjoy Jesus. The intention is that we enter into a relationship with him now, that we can have the joy of having an eternal and powerful God as our friend, as someone who loves us and wants to be involved in the most intimate parts of our lives, who wants to rejoice with us, 
You know that sometimes when we stand here and there's a band up front and they're leading us in worship, we feel a joy and, 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 and the presence of God close by. That's not supposed to be just for Sunday mornings while the songs are going. That's supposed to be every day. That's supposed to be when things are going great and we want to go, Woohoo, Lord, I'm enjoying myself. And it needs to be sometimes when things are going really, really bad and we say, Thank you, Lord, that you're here with me. Some of the most profound praying that I do is when I'm riding my motorcycle in the spring. And I like to, to take roads that I don't know. I'm, I love getting lost when I'm on my motorbike. I just push off into the countryside, and when I see a road I haven't been down, I like to go down it. And sometimes I come over, this is a beautiful country, and sometimes I'm come over a hill into a beautiful valley, and I'll just start praying and saying, Lord, this is so beautiful. You've done such a great job. Thank you. I think he likes that. I don't want to be facetious, but sometimes I think he writes pillion. Because he likes being with us. And we are inclined to maybe suck the joy of our relationship with God because all we can think of is, am I fulfilling the expectations that people have? Am I ticking off the boxes? Am I meeting the rules? Have I done enough? Have I earned some approval? Am I good enough? Have I, have I lost his approval because I doubted something? Does he not love me anymore? Jesus took time to get together with his disciples and to serve them a meal, to show them ordinary, simple love as friends share. God didn't create us as goldfish to admire in this elaborate goldfish bowl called the earth. Not like that at all. God created us for fellowship. To have people who would choose to spend time with him, choose to spend uh, time to love him. And I love the beach party. The final thing that I want to raise is something that comes up in all four of the Gospels. And it's the commission. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always. Mark chapter 16 says, He set them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Luke 24 verse 47, And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In John chapter 21, they had finished eating on the beach party. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said, take care of my sheep. There is an encouragement in all of the Gospels that we take the joy that we have in the resurrected Christ, that we take the peace that we have in the resurrected Christ, the personal assurance, the personal relationship that comes from knowing the risen Christ, that encounter that we personally have for him, and that we share that with the world that we take it out. Just this morning as we were praying before we started, we were praying that we would lift Jesus up. We don't have an onerous task as Christians in spreading the gospel of having to argue people into the kingdom of God. We don't have a task, it's a self-imposed one sometimes, to debate people into the kingdom of God, to argue them in, to, to pray them in by the perspiration dripping from our brow as we pray in the early hours of the morning. 
We put that all on ourselves. Our task is to lift Jesus up. He says if we lift him up, he will draw all men unto him. So what's our job? To share the joy, the personal joy of the reality of a risen Christ. To lift him up in our lives in the way that we respond to him. Have you ever got to hear about somebody and you, and you haven't met them yet, but everybody who talks about them is just excited about them? Until eventually you can't wait to meet this person because they sound like such wonderful people. What do people get from you and me when we talk about our Lord? What do they get from you and me when we talk about our salvation? Do they just get, oh man, this is so hard. This world nowadays is so difficult for Christians. Everybody's against us. Or do they get the joy of a personal encounter with Christ that makes them think, I really wish I could meet this person. Sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot. We preach one thing and we live something else. We, we preach victory in Christ and we walk around like we've been baptized in lemon juice. And we try and encourage people to have what we've got and what we've got doesn't make us smile. We serve a risen God. Simple as that. A Lord who died for us so that we could have a relationship with God which will include fish on the beach. I find it so powerful that it starts this encounter with a miracle which was similar to the one that was performed just before Peter, James, and John came to Jesus. Fish where they weren't fish before. He just reminds them of who he is. And then he brings them into fellowship. And besides the conversation recorded with Peter and John on the beach, most of what we get indicates that there wasn't an agenda for a big teaching. Let's spend time together. I want to encourage you as we move to take communion now as we break bread together. Make this a personal communion. When you go and thank God for the bread and the wine before you take it, thank Him for what He is in your life. Often our time of going to take communion is a time of, of searching ourselves, and we need to do that. We need to do this seriously. But go joyfully and celebrate the resurrection of Christ personally in your life. If you've met him, if you've brought him into your life, then Jesus has become alive to you. Rejoice in that. Thank him for that. Matthew, if you'd bring the band and you guys could maybe just play while we're taking and then we could have a time of worship after. I just want to pray and then invite you. If you've not been with us before when we break bread at Forest Town, uh, there are tables up front. Just the two, I think. Is there another one? There's one over there. There's a third one over there. And... Once I've prayed, I'm going to invite you when you're ready to come up, help yourself to bread and wine, stand with friends, stand with family, pray with one another, and we thank God for the salvation that we have through the gift that Jesus made in his sacrifice. Um, we don't take communion casually in the sense that we don't see it as something unimportant, but we do it informally. But I do invite you to take time with God. Don't just do this as something that's a habit or a pastime. Make it something personal and special as you take communion this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you are alive, that you defeated death, that you rose from the dead, that you appeared to people physically, and that you're now with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we say thank you, Lord, that we are individuals to you, that you've risen to each of us, not just a group of people. We haven't disappeared into the crowd. And so as we come to, to break bread, we come to offer individual thanks as well to acknowledge personally what you mean in our lives. 
and to tell you that we love you and enjoy your fellowship. Amen. Please come and share.